Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. If you have a Bible with you this morning, open it with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark first six verses of Mark chapter 6. While you're finding your place in a copy of God's Word, just a couple of quick reminders. First of all, uh, would remind you once again of the schedule change that's taking place this week with our midweek services here. Uh, so for the first three weeks in July, we're going to have uh, summer breakout sessions. The men will meet on Tuesday evenings beginning this Tuesday. Uh, from 6.30 to 8 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall. We're going to provide dinner for you. It'll be available for you. And uh, if you would like to join us for dinner, that'll start at 6.30. Uh, you need to fill out one of the meal reservation cards. It'll be on the pew back in front of you. Uh, we've made it really simple for you. It is blue. So fill out the blue card, men, if you want to come and join us for dinner. Uh, we've got barbecue on the menu along with all the sides, and then we'll uh, come together after that, starting at about 7 o'clock for a time of worship and a time in the Word together. And then ladies, you'll come on Wednesday evening, starting at 6.30. Dinner's going to be provided for you as well. I believe your menu this week is Chick-fil-A. Nothing like Christian chicken, so uh, come and enjoy some of that. You too need to fill out a reservation card, and it is pink. All right, I told you we made it simple. So guys, you fill out the blue. Ladies, you fill out the pink. But I hope that you'll make plans uh, to come to these occasions and to come together for fellowship, but also an opportunity uh, to grow in your faith. So we're looking forward to that. I uh, would also remind you that you can worship with us today through giving. Uh, the giving envelopes are on the pew back there in front of you. You can place your gift in that, drop it in those collection boxes, or you can always give by going online to the church website. But thankful uh, Poplar Springs for your faithfulness and your generosity and how you worship the Lord in your giving. Thank you so much for that. And then I'm excited to say this morning that as I looked across the sanctuary in our time of worshiping through song, uh, we have a special guest with us today. Miss Chloe Roberts is here with us this morning. We have been praying for her and we're thankful for the Lord answering our prayers. Her surgery went well. And I uh, continue to pray for her and her continued recovery, but uh, Ryan and Steph, we're so thankful uh, for the Lord being with you and being with her as well. All right, let's get into the word this morning, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, I'm going to read the first six verses. You follow along as I read and hear the word of God this morning. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray once more. Our Heavenly Father, we give our thanks to you now for this, your holy word. And Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of it today. Father, may your word go out in demonstration and power of your spirit. And Lord, may you use it today to accomplish your eternal purposes. By your word today, may our souls be nourished. By your word today, may our sins be confronted. And by your word today, may the lost be saved. And Father, may it all be for the fame of the name of Jesus Christ alone. For we ask it in his name. Amen. We often think of homecoming as a wonderful occasion, whether it's simply coming home from the end of the workday, whether it's coming home from a trip that we might have taken, certainly when we think about coming home from the hospital, or here on Independence Day weekend as we think about the occasion where soldiers come home from a deployment, coming back home is certainly nice. After all, we say home is where the heart is. We also speak of being homesick. Why is that? Because we all realize today that there really is no place quite like home. Uh, we witnessed a recent example of this uh, in the past couple of days for the many of us who are Braves fans. Just a few days ago, Freddie Freeman returned wearing Dodger blue to play again in Atlanta. And upon his return, it was evident that this had become a home for him and where his heart seems to be. And upon his arrival, he was met with open arms and loud, lingering applause. He was welcomed home. Well, that's the, perhaps the, the type of homecoming that we would expect Jesus to receive when he would return to his home, when he would go back to the city of Nazareth, the place that he spent as a child. However, when we come to Mark chapter 6, we discover something entirely the opposite. Rather than being met with resounding applause, Jesus was met with abrupt rejection. In our text this morning, Jesus has traveled approximately 25 miles southwest he has left Capernaum there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, his adopted home of ministry, and he has traveled with his disciples back to Nazareth, the town where he was raised. The town was obscure even in Jesus' day. Scholars tell us that it numbered less than 500 citizens, and some even say that there was perhaps Less than that, numbering somewhere between 100 to 250 people that would call this city home. It was built into a rocky hillside, but this was the place where Jesus was raised. However, he would receive no hero's welcome. 
This is actually the second time that Jesus would go back to his hometown of Nazareth once his public ministry began. The first occurrence we have is recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. And perhaps later this afternoon or maybe later during this week, you can sit down and read that. But what you'll discover there is a similar occurrence to what we have here, his second time of returning to Nazareth. And for all the wrong reasons, Jesus is absolutely amazed. He marvels at the reception that he receives. Now, why would Jesus go back to Nazareth? It seems that his ministry has met some success. While he's been there in Capernaum, he's got a band of followers now. He's got some disciples. He's uh, soon to appoint some apostles. He's, uh, he, he seems to have things coming together a little bit. So why depart and go 25 miles southwest to the town he grew up in? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus makes this turn in his ministry to equip his disciples. You notice that the Bible tells us that Jesus went to his hometown with his disciples following him. They came along, they were following their Lord, if you will, their rabbi, their teacher, but Jesus brought them for a specific purpose. He's preparing his disciples for rejection. This is what Jesus encounters when he comes to Nazareth. Jesus arrives, and as was his custom, it was Sabbath, so Jesus said, I'm going to the synagogue. In our vernacular, we would say it like this, Jesus was all about going to church. Call me old-fashioned, call me what you will, I still think we, as the people of God, need to be a people who are all about going to church. I struggle with someone who professes to be a believer, but yet they have no love for the church. They have no desire to gather with the church. They don't consistently show up with the church. Jesus always made it his practice to be there in the synagogue on the Sabbath, the day the Lord had set aside. And on this particular occasion, as the scrolls were read, he was given the opportunity to teach and teach he did and those who were gathered there that day were astonished they were overwhelmed at what jesus had to say and upon hearing his words they took offense at him we'll say more about that in a moment but needless to say his reception was not a warm one jesus was ultimately rejected once again by his own people by his home town and his disciples were witness to all of this and that's important because in the next text that we'll look at in our study of mark jesus is going to send the 12 out he's going to commission them to a mission and he's going to let them know you too will face rejection it's jesus helping his disciples and the apostles to understand if they rejected me don't be surprised that they're going to reject you I think we need that reminder today as well, that Jesus Christ in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53 was despised and rejected by men. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world rejects the gospel that we share with them. Jesus went there to equip his disciples for the mission that they would go on, but he also went there to equip them to understand the mission that he was on as well. 
You see, in this rejection by those in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus was supplying a foreshadowing of the rejection that he would receive when he would make his way to Jerusalem. There, he would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Jesus would go on to later teach his followers this in Luke 9, 22. He wanted them to understand the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. So in this occasion, Jesus is in some way foreshadowing the ultimate fulfillment of his mission that will take him to the ultimate rejection and crucifixion at the cross. So Jesus goes to Nazareth to equip. But more than that, in this return home, Jesus exposes the hearts of sinful humanity. And this is really where I think the focus of the text falls. Have you ever wondered what is it that amazes God? I mean, we talk about it all the time about what amazes us, right? We're blown away. We're overwhelmed. We can't believe it. How often do we use such expressions? But have you, have you ever pondered, I wonder, what amazes God? Well, Jesus tells us here in our text. In fact, Mark tells us on two occasions, two things that occurred that caused Jesus to marvel. Now think about that for a moment. This is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and something before him happens that, that kind of stops him in his tracks, that takes his breath away, where he says, I can't believe it. One occasion... Uh, we find later in the Gospels where Jesus will encounter a centurion soldier whose child is sick and he sends his servants to ask Jesus to come. And as Jesus is making his way there, word gets back to Jesus again from this one. Look, you don't even have to come. Just say the word. He says, I'm a man who understands authority, and I understand your authority. All you need to do is say the word, and you can heal them. And Jesus says, I can't believe this. The gospel writers tell us Jesus marveled. He marveled at the display of faith of this Roman centurion soldier. Jesus said, I've never seen a faith like that in all of Israel. He says, my own people... They don't even believe in me the way this Gentile believes in me. Jesus was blown away by the presence of faith in the life of that individual. Jesus marvels at faith. But here in our text this morning, we get the other side of that coin. That Jesus marvels Jesus is astonished not only at the presence of faith, but perhaps even more so at the absence of faith. Look back in our text this morning. Look at verse 6. Mark gives us a narration of what was going through Jesus what was taking place in his thoughts as he was rejected by his hometown there in Nazareth. He marveled because of their unbelief. In this text, 
Jesus returns to Nazareth in part to expose the sinful, unbelieving hearts of humanity. And he is blown away by it. This morning I've titled the sermon, Unbelievable Unbelief. Jesus, in a way, cannot believe that these people cannot believe in him. Unbelievable unbelief. And so in this text about unbelief, I want you to see with me for just a moment four astonishing aspects that capture the absurdity of unbelief in Jesus' hometown. And maybe you're asking the question, Wayne, why, why a sermon on unbelief? I mean, after all, we're, we're believers here. We profess belief in Jesus Christ. Because the Hebrew writer gives us an exhortation He tells us to be careful to take watch over our souls lest there become within us an evil and unbelieving heart. We need to be reminded once again of just how dangerous and how damning unbelief is. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 3, where we oftentimes think of Perhaps the most familiar verse in all of Scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. But almost immediately following that, John tells us that Jesus said, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And then he says that those who do not believe are condemned already. Do you hear the danger of unbelief? That if we're not believing, we are condemned, we are under the wrath of a holy God, we will incur His eternal, justifiable judgment. So the topic, the issue of unbelief is no small matter. And Jesus is blown away at the unbelievable unbelief of the people in the town where he grew up. Oh, may he not marvel at any of us today. So let me share with you these four astonishing aspects that capture the absurdity of unbelief in Jesus' hometown. First of all, I want you to see the undeniable clarity that they possessed. The undeniable clarity that they possessed. This is verse 2. Again, Jesus goes to the Sabbath, or excuse me, goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there he teaches. And they hear his teaching, and they were astonished. We've heard that previously in our study of Mark's gospel. It seems like everywhere Jesus goes and everything that he says, every opportunity that he has to teach, people are blown away at the message that he gives, at the sermon that he preaches. They've never heard anyone teach with such authority. They've never heard anyone preach with such conviction. And it's no different here in his hometown of Nazareth. And upon hearing him, look at what they say. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And then they add to his words the reality of the works that Jesus has performed. How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
It's clear before them that there is something undeniably different about this man, Jesus Christ. It's clear in his words. It's clear in his wisdom. It's clear in the works that he has done before them. Jesus has displayed this to them over and over and over again, right there in their very presence and then in the surrounding regions as well, but yet they do not believe. Now, how many times have you thought, or perhaps you've encountered someone, and they put forth an argument like this, well, you know, if I'd been there in the Bible days, it'd be easier for me to believe. If I'd have been there and saw Jesus open a a blind person's eyes, if I'd have been there and saw Jesus feed 5,000 people, if I'd have been there and saw Lazarus walk out of that tomb, I think I could have believed then. Don't you believe it? These people saw it. These people heard it. And they still did not believe. And let me remind you today that you've been given a more sure word of prophecy that you've been given a a faithful witness as well to the person and the work and the wisdom and the words of Jesus Christ. It's laying there before you in your lap. You're, You're holding it in your hands. Paul even tells us that through creation and conscience, God has rendered us without excuse before Him. I've often told people in recent years as we see what's happening in our society as we see what's happening in in our country as things seem to get progressively worse and we continue in a, a downward spiral in relation to morality the explanation for what's going on is found clearly in romans chapter one If you want to understand what's happening in our culture today, read Romans chapter 1. And what you discover there is that what has been made known about God is clear to everyone. That through creation and conscience, what can be known about God is plain, Paul says. God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. Listen to what he says. They have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. But yet we've rejected those things. We've turned away from the righteousness that has been made known to us through creation, through conscience, through the witness of Christ that is found in Scripture. We've turned away from those things, and God has turned us over to our sinful ways. And Paul says, we're without excuse. There is undeniable clarity in regards to who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, and why He has come to save sinners like us, but yet we don't believe. And Jesus marvels. He's blown away the unbelievable unbelief. Undeniable clarity. It's clear. It's clear through creation. It's clear through the preaching of the Word. It's clear through the work and the person of Christ. But yet for so many, they love the darkness rather than light. Undeniable clarity. But secondly, the absurdity of their unbelief is seen in that they were unmoved by familiarity. Unmoved familiarity. This takes us to the beginning of verse 3. 
They've heard Jesus' words. They've seen his works. They, they know that, man, there's something, something here. But their familiarity with Jesus presents a blockade to their belief. Look at what it says in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? They can't get over the fact that this is the guy who grew up down the street from them. It's here where we get a clear indication of the true and full humanity that Jesus possesses. He was fully man. And as a man, he served his community through the work of a, a builder, a carpenter. It's a word in the Greek language that, that means working with wood or working with stone. He was, a, he was a contractor. And in a village, a city as small as Nazareth, surely Jesus, perhaps even with Joseph, had done much work for the community. And they couldn't, they couldn't understand that God swings a hammer. They were so used to him, so accustomed to him. And then they add to that the reality of the family connections that Jesus has. He was the son of Mary. He had brothers. He had sisters. And, and they're here with us. By speaking of him as the son of Mary, the veil is beginning to be pulled back on them. It's about to become crystal clear, but in that statement, we, we begin to see uh, the, 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 the true nature of their hearts in relation to Jesus. Because by describing him as the son of Mary, it was out of the ordinary to speak of a Jewish man in relation to his mother. Now, some commentators say that they spoke of him as the son of Mary because by this time, it seems that Joseph has passed away. He's no longer present. We don't see him in the gospel accounts outside of the birth narratives. And so they describe him as the son of Mary because his father, his earthly father, Joseph, has deceased. But Jewish culture never spoke of a man in relation to his mother if the father was alive or had passed. It was always the son of the father. And so as they speak of Jesus in this way, there's a, a tinge, there's an element of ridicule here. Because they were saying to Jesus, in essence, we know who our daddies are, but we're not real sure who you, your daddy is. You, you came about in some immoral way. This is the charge that the Pharisees will lay against Jesus on several occasions. Because they seek to blaspheme him. That he's an illegitimate son. That his mother had him out of wedlock. And perhaps that's what they're doing here. They're, they're overwhelmed at what they have heard. They can't put the pieces together. They're unmoved in their familiarity. They're, they're comfortable with the carpenter. And now they're saying, you're no better than us. In fact, you're worse than we are. Their familiarity is a barricade to their belief. And how true that is for so many today as well. How blessed we are to have such access to the gospel. Think about the access that these people had of Jesus growing up in their hometown. Now, I'm not inclined to think that Jesus was, 
you know, separating the water in his bathtub, like Moses did the Red Sea as he was growing up. I don't think he was going around and taking everybody's Lunchables and saying, hey, what's what I can do with this? I don't think it was that kind of childhood. I think he was a normal child growing up. But in his growing up, as he grew in the wisdom and the stature of the Lord, there was a difference about him and how he lived his life and how he followed his parents and how he related to his neighbors and how he did his job. It simply could not uh, have gone unnoticed, but yet they were comfortable with him. They couldn't understand that this wasn't just the son of Mary and the brother of these guys and the, uh, the, the, the guy who had the sisters that they all knew. Oh, we today have such access to the things of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that for many of us, we become so familiar with it that we're unmoved by it. One of the greatest concerns I have as a pastor, as a preacher of the gospel, is that as I come each Sunday and open the Word of God and uh, try to faithfully exposit and expound upon the Word of God, that as that Word goes out, if you become familiar with it but unmoved by it, your heart is growing hardened to the things of God. It is becoming an inoculation for you. It is not seeking to shape you into the image of Christ. It's not being used to conform you more to, to be like Jesus, but instead it's working against you spiritually. This is the reason the Hebrew writer says we've got to be on guard. We've got to be careful that the things that we become familiar with, we don't take for granted that we're not unmoved by them. Jesus was blown away that they were unmoved with the access and the availability that they had to him there in his hometown. Their unmoved familiarity. But then thirdly, I want you to see their unthinkable depravity. Their unthinkable depravity. This is the last part of verse 3, and then Jesus expounds on it in verse 4. Having heard his words and considered his wisdom and acknowledged his works, unmoved by him, they took offense at him. They took offense at the Son of God. Now, lest you think that this offense was, they were just rude to him and just kind of walked out from him. On the first occasion when Jesus went to Nazareth after his baptism by John and being there in the wilderness, as he went back to Nazareth, a similar scenario unfolds. He teaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He reads from Isaiah. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. He was acknowledging himself as the Messiah. And he acknowledged that the people of Israel were residing in unrepentant faith. They had wandered from God, and he was calling them back to repentance. And when they heard that message, it offended them. Let me remind us that the gospel is always offensive to a sinner. Because in the gospel message, we are confronted not with our righteousness and not with our goodness and not with our ability, but with our, with our unrighteousness and with our evil hearts and with our inability to do anything to save ourselves. We're confronted by our unfitness in the gospel. And they heard that. And Luke tells us that on that occasion, they sought to kill Jesus. 
They sought to capture him and take him to the pinnacle of the mountain, the top of that hillside where Nazareth had been constructed, and throw him off of it. This is his first time coming back home. And they're ready to, to take his life, but Jesus escapes through their midst, Luke tells us. So Jesus comes back the second time. Same song, different verse. Guess what? Same outcome. They take offense. And it's not just that they got their feelings hurt. It was a a revealing of their hearts in relation to how they think about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus expounds on this in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus here is acknowledging his role as the true prophet of God, the one that Moses said in Deuteronomy that the Lord would send, that we should listen to. And in line with all the prophets of the Old Testament, those who were sent to Israel rejected them. Jesus says, that's what you're doing to me here today. You're rejecting me because your hearts are hardened by your sin. What we have here in this encounter with Jesus, with his his home folk, his kinsmen, is a picture of the parable that Jesus gave us regarding the soils. Remember the four types of soils there that Jesus spoke of? You remember the first soil that Jesus mentioned? It was the hard, impenetrable ground, and the seed fell upon it, and the birds came and took it away. It's the people in Jesus' hometown. Their hearts are hardened to the truth of God, the message of the gospel, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. Unless you think it's just them. I would remind you that every one of us come into this world with that type of heart. I would remind you today that there is no one who has always been a believer. You ever met those people? I've just believed in Jesus Christ my whole life. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. And you don't know your Bible. Because the Bible makes it plain. The Bible makes it clear that our hearts are set against the truth of God and the things of God and the work of God and the wisdom of God and the person of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Our hearts are darker than 10,000 midnights, stained by more sin than we ever care to understand. And Jesus here is exposing that in the hometown that He grew up in. But it's in all of us. There's an unthinkable depravity. We like to fancy ourselves that we're far better than what we are, but that's not the gospel truth. Paul makes this so clear in his New Testament epistles. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were by our very nature children of wrath. Our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus is marveling at the depths of their unbelief. He's overcome by the depths of their depravity. And as we think about that, oh, how thankful and and, 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 and gracious we are for the work of the Spirit of God that changes our hearts. 
that opens our eyes, that alters our affections, that we would see and savor and know who Jesus is, that we would receive his wisdom, we would hearken to his word. Unbelievable belief. Unbelievable unbelief comes from an unthinkable depravity. But then lastly, I want you to see here the unheeded opportunity. This is the last two verses of the text. The unheeded opportunity. Verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there. Now this is not an inability on the part of Jesus. Alright? This is... This is not that somehow Jesus lost the mojo. Can't get it done in Nazareth. There's kryptonite in Nazareth. Nope, nope, not the case at all. This is the man who can speak and the wind stop and the sea goes glass calm. This is the man who can heal a demoniac. This is the man that can open blinded eyes. This is the man that can raise the dead. And you think that just because he comes to Nazareth, he can't do something? No. He possesses all ability. He possesses all might. But his work among them is hindered because of the unbelief that is present. The purposes of the work of Jesus Christ are to give testimony to his person. He he doesn't go around handing out miracles to get more likes and more followers. He doesn't go around healing people so that he can feel better about himself. He performs these miracles and he does these mighty works so that it can be seen and testified to that he is the Son of God. The whole emphasis of Mark's gospel. Peter, when he stands up and he preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he tells the crowd who had gathered there and were listening, this man who was attested unto you to be the Son of God by the signs and the wonders and the mighty works that He performed. The miracles of Jesus were given as signs to point us to Him being the Savior sent from God. These people didn't want a Savior. They felt as if they didn't need a Savior. And so there was no point in any mighty work to be done. But think of the unheeded opportunity that was before them. Think of what Jesus could have done in their midst. Think of the lives that could have been transformed. Yes, physically, but even more so spiritually. Yes, momentarily, but also eternally. An unheeded opportunity. In verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And then we have this last closing comment here. He went about among the villages teaching. The ministry of Jesus continued on. He went to other places. He went on to other people. But the opportunity for those in his hometown had passed. And Jesus marveled that they wouldn't believe in him. Oh, can I remind you today that God has set an opportunity before you An opportunity to hear His Word, to be confronted with His Son, to hear the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, to 
to hear that God has sent His Son in the world. The kingdom of God is near. To hear the message, to repent and believe, to trust in Christ alone for salvation. He has given you that opportunity, but hear me, that opportunity may not always be for you. That opportunity may pass you by today, so you do well and you do right to heed this moment to not persist in unbelief, to to, to not escape the undeniable reality of who Jesus is, to not be unmoved by the familiar things that you've heard perhaps for all of your life, to be confronted today with the unthinkable depravity of the sinfulness of your own heart. He has given you this occasion, this opportunity that you might call upon his name and receive salvation through him. Oh, don't pass it by. Don't pass it by. I'm reminded of the work of Noah in the Old Testament. A preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. It wasn't that the Lord told him, go build this big old ship, and Noah had this thing done in just a few days. Years, decades. He gathered the materials, he slung the hammer, he did the work. And during all of that time, he was a preacher of righteousness. With every ringing blow of the hammer, with every board of wood that was sawn, with every bit of pitch that was applied, Noah was preaching a message. Here's an opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. And the multitudes simply left it unattended to. Ignored it. And the Lord gave this warning. My spirit will not always strive with man. Hear me today. God's spirit will not always work in your heart. God's spirit will not always draw and woo and compel you to come. And so today, if that should be the case for you, If you're sitting there and you're realizing, I know that Jesus is the Son of God and and I know that I'm a sinner deserving of hell, what do I do? Heed the opportunity. Take this moment, this day, today is the day of salvation. Let it not pass by. Because there's no guarantee that He'll come this way again. Don't persist in unthinkable unbelief. Let's pray.